0: There exist a myriad of cultural taboos in our modern world, behaviors from which we collectively agree to refrain – incest, pedophilia, cannibalism. Just thinking about incest or pedophilia is enough to make most people uncomfortable. In fact, the mere idea of cannibalizing another person is enough, quite literally, to turn your stomach. Humans are complex creatures who are motivated by emotion. It's what separates us from other animals. Although we might not typically categorize curiosity as an emotion, it is curiosity that is the driving force behind scientific discoveries and social changes. Curiosity compels us to try to understand the very things that make us uncomfortable. and Often, we even glorify that which creeps us out. In 1991, the world was introduced to Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee cannibal, and our fascination with with him has not waned. Dahmer's crimes were so repulsive, so stomach-turning, so bizarre, that it's tough to wrap your head around it. I think most of us can, at least theoretically, understand murder. But how do we explain cannibalism? Writer and psychologist Jesse Baring has written extensively about paraphilias, including cannibalism, and he offers two reasons for cannibalism. One is nutritional chronic starvation, and the other is a sociopathic pseudosexual need. As a long-time vegetarian, I'm reasonably sure I could never be hungry enough to eat another person. I do think, however, that I can understand, at least intellectually, the pseudosexual drive behind cannibalism.
1: Factory. What
2: would you bet Jeffrey down meat
1: Eating a bunch of the fellows
0: he'd need. If Jeff was a cat and men were the rats, what do you think will come of that? I don't like the
2: look of it. Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee
1: Jeffrey loved eating men from gay bars, and he lived in happiness too. Like the Oompa Loompa.
0: Welcome to SKB, Dissecting the Serial Killer's Brain. I'm your host, Caroline, a university biology professor and true crime junkie. Thanks for joining me on my journey to understand evil. It was July 22, 1991, just about 11.30 p.m. when Milwaukee police officers Mueller and Roth were flagged down by a man with a handcuff dangling off of his left wrist. This incident would lead the officers into a nightmare they could never have imagined and a story that would shock the world. This is the terrifying tale of Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. The Milwaukee Cannibal was responsible for the murders of at least 17 innocent men between 1978 and 1991. And in this series, I will attempt to answer the question of nature versus nurture. Was Jeffrey Dahmer born evil or was his evil the result of environmental trauma? Jeffrey Dahmer was challenging seemingly from the time of his conception. This might have been accepted as it's evident that his parents had a turbulent and often toxic relationship, both dealing with their own mental illnesses. Lionel Dahmer was reticent and stoic. Joyce Flint was temperamental and emotionally needy. The couple were married August 22, 1959. Lionel was completing his degree in chemistry at Marquette University in Milwaukee, and Joyce was a teletype machine instructor, and in case you didn't know what a teletype machine instructor is, or well, you know what an instructor is, but a teletype is a typewriter that was used to send telephonic signals. So it was like the earliest um, type of sort of fax machine. Lionel Herbert Dahmer was born July 29th, 1936, and he had a childhood fraught with obsessive thoughts involving fire. In his book, A Father's Story, Lionel describes what he thinks was the root of his obsession. A man with a wooden leg who lived down the street would strike a match on his leg to light his pipe. This action, repeated over and over again, was a source of fascination for young Lionel. He began stealing matches and would then light them one by one, transfixed by the presence of fire. He described an innocent in which his fire obsession got out of control when he almost burned down a neighbor's garage. As Lionel got older, his obsession with fire developed into a fascination with bombs and explosives. In fact, he once blew a kid off of his bicycle by placing explosives on it. Lionel's father found out about his son's obsession and was able to get through to him, and eventually Lionel was able to control his obsession, and he actually harnessed it into a love of chemistry. Joyce Dahmer, born Joyce Annette Flint, on February 7th, 1936, is a bit of a mystery. Not much has been written about Joyce's childhood, but what there, what little there is came from Lionel's book. There's nothing in her own words. Joyce's father was a domineering and explosive alcoholic who appeared to his family to be indifferent and uninterested, neglectful. Her father's drinking and abuse ensured that Joyce would be forever craving attention and reassurance in an effort to erase the abandonment she felt in her childhood. And according to Sea Ridge Foundation, which is a rehabilitation center, adult children of alcoholics will often fear losing control, fear emotions, constantly seek approval, deny anything that provokes fear, have difficulty with intimacy, develop a victim mentality, exhibit compulsive behavior, find comfort in chaos. They tend to view life through an extreme lens. They'll easily develop physical illness seek out compulsive people, and have a constant need for reassurance. These characteristics seem to align perfectly with the descriptions of Joyce. Soon after Lionel and Joyce were married, she became pregnant. and Jeffrey Dahmer's difficulties began in utero. And again, all the information about Joyce's pregnancy comes from Lionel's accounts and interviews, um, and from Brian Master's book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer, and from Lionel's own book, A Father's Story. From the beginning of her pregnancy, Joyce had incredibly intense morning sickness. It was so intense that she could not keep any food down, nor could she continue working. In fact, she spent about two months in bed. Joyce was also dealing with a hypersensitivity to smells and sounds. And although some of this is totally normal during pregnancy, Joyce's seemed to be exacerbated by her growing anxiety. At the time, um, Lionel and Joyce were living in a small two-family apartment building, and the smells and noises that emanated from the downstairs neighbors were just too much for Joyce to bear. Many women report increased um, hyperosmia, which is sensitivity to smell, especially during pregnancy, um, especially in regard to odors like cigarette smoke, heavy perfumes, gasoline, and prepared or spoiled foods. Studies indicate that hyperosmia is the result of a pregnant woman's hormone levels. And it's often estrogen, which is one of the female sex hormones that's synthesized in the ovaries and the placenta from androgen. Um, Estrogen is typically named as the culprit, but it's, it's probably much more likely that this hyperosmia is caused by levels of human chorionic gonadotropin. And HCG is a hormone that's produced by the cells of the implanting embryo. The levels of HCG increase during the first trimester Often doubling every two days? It's during this first trimester that levels of nausea and vomiting typically hit their peak. In most women this sensitivity typically will subside by the second trimester. But why was Joyce so bothered by the smells and sounds that others would find mildly irritating or even normal? One explanation for this is that smell is um, one one of the most intense triggers of the limbic system. And the limbic system is often referred to as our emotional brain because the structures of the the limbic system regulate fear, anger, and sexual behavior. It's also our pleasure center. The limbic system is responsible for another very important activity, categorizing memories. The amygdala, another piece of the limbic system, is also in charge of cataloging and filing away memories where the memory is stored is based on the magnitude of the emotional response that accompanied the event. The amygdala is critical to our fear response, our fight or flight response, and it is the first structure to activate in response to potential danger. The limbic system, specifically the amygdala, is overactive in individuals with anxiety disorders and uh, post-traumatic stress. Any sensory event, a smell, a sound, a visual stimulus can trigger an overwhelming fear response, even if there's no danger. Many adult children of violent alcoholics suffer from generalized anxiety disorders, depression, or PTSD. This was likely the case for Joyce Dahmer. During her pregnancy, Joyce also suffered from severe muscle spasms that eventually turned into vicious bouts of paralysis. But what could have um, caused these episodes of paralysis? I bet doctors back then thought it was in her head. The truth is that morning sickness can cause something called hypokalemia, which is low potassium. Potassium is one of the one of the um, super important major ions that helps to keep your body balanced. Hypokalemia can be the result of uh, mom not eating enough, and um, thus she's not replenishing her potassium and other ions. Or it could be due to excessive vomiting that leads to electrolyte depletion, and again, Potassium, sodium, calcium, chloride, these are all electrolytes or ions. The imbalance of electrolytes can cause muscle fatigue. In extreme cases, it can lead to temporary paralysis. Potassium plays an important role in maintaining this homeostatic balance in the body. You have something like 37 trillion cells in your body, and these cells contain the machinery needed to keep you alive. Of the 37 trillion cells we have, roughly, and this is a total guesstimation here, Thirteen trillion are muscle cells. So muscles need some sort of stimulus in order to contract, and this stimulus comes in the form of electricity, and that electricity is created by ions like sodium and potassium. Under normal resting conditions, there are high levels of potassium and low levels of sodium inside of the cell and the opposite outside of the cell. So when a muscle contracts, it does so because there's a change in the electrical potential of the cell because sodium is rushing in in exchange for potassium. And the exchange is an uneven exchange, so it's three potassiums. I mean, sorry, it's three sodiums per two potassium. In order to return to its resting state, potassium exits the cell. A quick aside: the cocktail used for lethal injections includes a barbiturate to induce loss of consciousness, um, pancurium bromide to block the actions of the muscles to cause paralysis, and potassium chloride to stop the heart. Um, potassium chloride in lethal doses prevents the the heart muscles from returning to rest. To treat Joyce's muscle freezing or uh, rigidity spells, her doctor would administer barbiturates and morphine. Barbiturate use use during pregnancy can lead to behavioral issues in an infant and it's also been associated with learning disabilities, decreased IQ, performance deficits, increased incidence of psychosocial maladjustment, and demasculinization of gender identity and sexual behavior in males. Interestingly, fetal exposure to barbiturates has also been connected to decreased responsiveness to aversive stimuli, meaning maybe that's why Dahmer could do the things he did so many years later. Normal person would be totally disgusted by eating another human being. But maybe it was this um, exposure to barbiturates. Morphine use during pregnancy specifically has not been studied extensively, however, babies born to women who use opioids may present with long-term neuropsychological consequences associated with dysfunction in their intellectual ability and emotional control during their childhood. To treat her morning sickness, Joyce was prescribed thalidomide. Thalidomide is a sedative that was widely prescribed in the 1950s to pregnant women to help with nausea, but it was pulled by the FDA from this use in 1961 because it was causing birth defects, including abnormalities in limb formation, and it has also been linked to brain damage. Thalidomide is still used today, but mainly as a cancer treatment or immunosuppressant, um, and those taking it are told not to become pregnant. Joyce also took an anti-anxiety medication called Equinil, up to 26 pills a day, according to Lionel. Equinil should not be taken during pregnancy, especially during the first three months, because it it can hinder the neurological development of the embryo. The dangers of taking Equinil during pregnancy were reported as early as 1974, but unfortunately not in the 1960s. Like many anti-anxiety medications, equinol is an addictive substance and it can have profound withdrawal effects if it's stopped suddenly. All right, so we've got her bouts of muscle paralysis, her morning sickness. Joyce also suffered from seizures, but the seizures could have been caused by the thalidomide, the equinol, and or by her severe nausea. Finally, Joyce was extremely isolated during her pregnancy. She had to quit her job as a teletype instructor because she was so sick, and she didn't drive. So she, was, she had no way to get out and be around other people. Eventually, Lionel and Joyce moved in with Lionel's parents in order to avoid the external stimuli uh, from her neighbors that caused Joyce so much misery. But the move and living arrangement here with Lionel's parents did not go well either. And as I stated earlier, all of this information comes from Lionel's books, and from interviews with Lionel and his second wife, Sherry. In an interview with Joyce on Hard Copy, Joyce denies that she had a difficult pregnancy, but I'll let you decide if she was delusional or in denial. If you don't recognize the voice of the man that's interviewing Joyce, it's Stone Phillips.
1: I had, um, uh, what I thought were probably the ordinary kinds of things that happen when you're pregnant, and...
2: Morning sickness?
1: Morning sickness.
2: A lot of nausea? Yes. Lionel describes a a strange undiagnosed problem. He describes it as some kind of a seizure that you developed, uh, a proneness to seizures late in the pregnancy where you had... He describes it as a kind of rigidness for which you were prescribed medications. Do you... Do you remember that? And can you describe? That I don't
1: remember that at all. I don't. I can't imagine where that comes from. It isn't true. I don't. Um,
2: you don't recall any anything like that? No, Seizures or no, seizure-like no. episodes?
1: Absolutely not.
2: Were you prescribed medications, including morphine, barbiturates?
1: No, I, I don't know what medications were prescribed, and I'm surprised that anyone says that there is something um, that lists every single medication I took 33 years ago. Um, I, I had a doctor, a physician. I took the medicine that was prescribed for me. And for the most part, I was healthy. You weren't on morphine. Uh, you know, I don't think you give pregnant women morphine. I, I, you know, I'd have to... Ask my doctor, but then give pregnant women morphine.
2: Barbiturates of any kind in order to calm you down in these these seizure states? As uh, there, were no, them.
1: there were no seizure states. I don't know where from? that's coming from. Well, stone, I don't know. And it's one of the reasons why I'm finally speaking out, because... Um, there were no seizures. There was nothing um, that was out of the ordinary as far as my pregnancy was concerned, except that I needed to be in bed. There's an
2: obvious discrepancy here between what you're saying and what Lionel was saying about the about the nature of the pregnancy. It was difficult, you both agree, but, but he describes you in these states where you were, as he says, literally frothing at the mouth. In these Are you serious? Rigid, in these rigid states, yeah for which you were given medication to to settle or calm you down? Well, I
1: don't know what his purpose is in doing that. I do know that when this first happened, the very first thing that the husband that I divorced did was come out with these accusations against me. They're not true. Well, I don't know how I can prove it to you that they're not true. Is it um, possible you just don't remember them? No, it's not possible. I don't remember them. It was my first pregnancy. I remember everything about my first pregnancy.
0: Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer was born on May 21, 1960. The only apparent issue seemed to be the fact that he was born with a minor deformity of one of his legs. This was likely a result of Joyce's use of thalidomide. I mean, he had to be in a cast for the first few months of his life. Joyce was not excited at the prospect of breastfeeding, which I totally get because until I actually had a baby, I found it appalling as well. Um, She began to dread it and quit just after a few days. And breastfeeding is a really important um, gift or sacrifice that a mother can give or make for many reasons. To start, mom passes antibodies and other important immune cells as well as proteins and minerals through her milk. But maybe even more important than the immune and nutritional value of breast milk is the bonding that occurs between mother and baby. The hormone that's responsible for uterine contractions during childbirth and for the milk letdown reflex during breastfeeding is also referred to as the cuddle hormone and it's called oxytocin. During breastfeeding, baby's suckling stimulates mom's posterior pituitary gland to release oxytocin. And as this is happening, baby's posterior pituitary gland also releases oxytocin. So, one of the super important the one of the super important parts of breastfeeding is this contact between baby and mom in eye contact between baby and mom or caregiver because persistent body contact and nurturing from mom elevates the baby's oxytocin levels. In the absence of baby's own oxytocin, cortisol levels will rise. And cortisol is that pesky stress hormone, Um, but it's part of the, the stress response or fight or flight response cortisol is. And it's oxytocin that's responsible for the attachment between parent and baby. Oxytocin pathways are negatively affected by prenatal stress, prenatal drug use, and exposure to adversity. And if a baby is forcibly and abruptly weaned, it can feel like a rejection. And a baby can't reason through what rejection is. According to Lionel, Joyce experienced severe postpartum depression and only picked up Jeffrey to change his diapers, feed him, or to take a picture with him. And infants of mothers with postpartum depression showed the lowest levels of social engagement during interactions with their mothers, um, they were unable to self-regulate during situations that introduced novelty, they fussed and cried more often, and their physiological stress response showed both higher baseline levels and more pronounced stress reactivity. So what that means is their stress hormones, um, things like cortisol, were higher than they were in babies whose mothers didn't suffer from postpartum depression. And their, their stress reactivity means like how quickly or how easily the baby is stressed out. Many new mothers experience postpartum depression. And I actually had pretty severe postpartum depression. Um, and it's, it, it's very difficult, especially when you don't understand what's happening. One of the most extreme cases of postpartum depression that I've heard about was um, Andrea Yates, who drowned all five of her children one by one in the bathtub in a fit of psychosis that was induced by her postpartum depression. Now, that kind of postpartum depression psychosis is very, very rare. Uh, Andrea Yates thought she was saving her children from hell. Joyce's case did not seem to be as extreme as Yates. However, it definitely had a negative impact on Jeffrey's development because it went untreated. Early, Jeffrey began to associate his existence with his mother's unhappiness. There was also a permanent state of tension and anger between Joyce and Lionel throughout their marriage. And it was at its worst during these early days. And this is when Lionel and Joyce were living with Lionel's parents, and Lionel was frequently absent. And he, over the years, would use work and school to avoid Joyce. This goes without saying, but Jeffrey Dahmer's parents had a substantial influence on his childhood. Lionel was rarely home due to his university studies. Um, He earned a master's degree in chemistry early on in the Dahmer marriage. Within the first year of his life, Jeffrey fell out of his little spider walker and smashed his chin. So who knows if he suffered from a concussion. It might surprise you to learn that the brain actually has quite a bit of room within the skull to move around, and it can be jarred pretty easily if there's sufficient force. We now know that head trauma is a common trait amongst serial killers. When Jeffrey was two, Lionel accepted a graduate assistant post in Iowa so that he could pursue his PhD. To say PhD work is intense would be an understatement, and I can say this from personal experience. During these early years, Joyce's mental health quickly deteriorated. She reportedly had a recurrent dream during these years about being chased by a black bear. And according to various dream interpretation websites, including Lori Lowenbrow, who is the absolute bomb, uh, being chased by a bear means that you're running away from your problems. Um, Arguments with Joyce and Lionel continued, and they got worse. They even became physical at times. Jeffrey saw his father hit his mother when she was hysterical, and Lionel was attempting to calm her down. Verbal or physical abuse between parents messes kids up because often violence then becomes blurred into their developing sexuality. In male children, this is especially true when the father is passive and the mother aggressive. Domineering mothers and weak fathers seem to be a recurring theme among sexually motivated serial killers. There are no perfect parents, but Lionel and Joyce appear to be on the crappier spectrum of parenting. From ages two to four, Jeffrey suffered from a number of illnesses, regularly contracting ear and throat infections. Although there is no info available about early childhood fevers in Jeffrey, it is possible that Jeffrey sustained brain trauma due to these frequent fevers. Typically, brain damage doesn't occur unless there is a sustained fever of more than 106.7 degrees. There's a lot of conflicting data um, out there regarding the impact of a fever on the brain's function. Jeffrey Dahmer attended preschool in Ames, Iowa. But preschool was difficult for Jeffrey. The three-year-old was awkward and had trouble fitting in with the other children. According to a um, 2002 posthumous analysis by Silva, Jeffrey Dahmer had Asperger's syndrome. So it's Asperger's? According to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, according to the DSM-IV, Asperger's syndrome is defined as, quote, impaired social interactions, especially difficulty with social reciprocity idiosyncratic interests or activities, odd, mechanical, or socially inappropriate speech patterns, end quote. In the 1960s and 1970s, this was not a diagnosis. It wasn't until 1990 that Asperger's was included in the DSM. Asperger's is typically now diagnosed or is recognizable around age three or even a bit later. So Asperger's, just some more detail here. Um, There's qualitative impairment in social interaction, and it's manifested by at least two of the following things. Marked impairment in the use of multiple nonverbal behaviors such as eye-to-eye gaze, facial expression, body posture, and gestures to regulate social interaction. Failure to develop peer relationships appropriate to developmental level. Lack of spontaneous seeking to share enjoyment, interests, or achievements with other people. Or... Lack of social or emotional reciprocity. Next um, is restrictive, repetitive, and stereotyped patterns of behavior, interests, and activities as manifested by at least one of the following. An encompassing preoccupation with one or more stereotyped and restricted patterns of interest that is abnormal either in intensity or focus. Apparently inflexible adherence to specific non-functional routines or rituals persistent preoccupation with parts of objects. Remember that one. So the disturbance causes clinically significant impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Uh, There's no clinically significant general delay in language, and there's no clinically significant delay in cognitive development or in the development of age-appropriate self-help skills, adaptive behavior other than social interaction, and curiosity about the environment in childhood. Criteria are not met for other specific pervasive developmental disorder or schizophrenia. So based on all of that, this diagnosis seems to be right on the mark. Um, And and we can look at how Lionel would later describe a young Jeffrey Dahmer. And this is what Lionel had to say, that Jeffrey lacked proper eye gaze. Um, He had an emotionless facial expressions, expressions, motionlessness in his mouth, He had a rigid, straight, knees-locked, feet-dragging posture. He was emotionally detached or disconnected, and he enjoyed repetitive games and games that mimicked stalking, hide-and-seek, things like that. In stark contrast to Lionel's description of Jeffrey, Joyce described Jeffrey as a wonderful child that showed no signs of mental disturbance. So what was a four-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer like? Well, one day Lionel had cleaned a bunch of animal bones up from under the house and he placed them into a bucket. He set the bucket down and was talking with Joyce when he turned around to see that Jeffrey had taken the the bunch of bones out of the bucket and was staring at them, dropping them on the pavement with fascination. Lionel noted that Jeffrey seemed oddly thrilled by the sound the bones made and Jeffrey commented that the bones were like fiddlesticks. There were lots of these little, seemingly insignificant stories about a very young Jeffrey Dahmer, that don't really mean anything, except in the context of what would happen later. One day, Jeffrey asked Lionel, what would happen if somebody cut out his belly button? Not too unusual, right? I think most four-year-olds have a normal curiosity about their body and all of its parts. For a long time, we thought serial killers or psychopaths lack empathy. But more recent studies indicate that instead, psychopaths have an empathy switch, meaning that they can feel empathy towards some if they try. Empathy lies in an area of the brain located with the inferior parietal lobule called the right supramarginal gyrus. If you're interested in seeing these brain parts, I'll post a labeled picture of a real brain on the website. The inferior parietal lobule is involved in the the interpretation of emotional stimuli from others. So this coupled with the right supramarginal gyrus allows us to see and then feel the emotion of others. At an early age, Jeffrey would begin to show a lack of empathy, and one example of this is when he tricked a neighborhood boy into sticking his hand into a hornet's nest. It was in 1964, when he was four years old, that Jeffrey was diagnosed with a double hernia and had to have surgery. No one thought to explain to little Jeffrey what was about to happen, and so when he woke up and was in a great deal of pain following the surgery, he asked his mother and the doctors if they'd cut off his penis. That must have been terrifying. After the surgery, his personality changed from a happy, exuberant child to a sullen and introverted one. It's very likely that early exposure to anesthesia had some detrimental effects on Jeffrey. In fact, exposure to general anesthetic and sedating drugs for more than three hours can cause widespread loss of nerve cells in a young, developing brain. Studies suggest that these changes and or losses of nerve cells can result in long-term negative effects um, on behavior and learning, and that anesthesia exposure may also contribute to the development of ADHD or a lower IQ or even delayed language development. Finally, exposure to anesthesia in young children can lead to decreased volume in an area called the cerebellum, the occipital lobe, and the right frontal lobe. The cerebellum is responsible for the coordination of voluntary motor movement, balance, and muscle tone, and a reduction in gray matter in the occipital lobe, specifically in an area called the right lingual gyrus, is associated with self-reported ratings of dissociation and limbic irritability. Quote, the sensations that events, conversations, or a place was strangely familiar as if you'd experienced or dreamed the situation before and the sensation that your mind has left your body, or that you're watching yourself as a detached observer. The frontal lobe has a number of functions, but among the most important are impulse control and social and sexual behaviors. So damage to the frontal lobe can result in difficulty in interpreting feedback from the environment, such as uh, persevering on a response, risk-taking, and non-compliance with rules, as well as impaired associated learning. In these early years of Jeffrey's life, Joyce would insist that she and Lionel join the Church of Christ, a fundamentalist group who adhere strictly to the Bible. Lionel said that the conversion made their life a bit more amiable. Joyce also wanted another baby, and Jeffrey seemed excited at the prospect of being a big brother, and he would put his ear against Joyce's belly to listen. In 1966, Lionel finished his PhD, and the Dahmers moved to Doyleston, Ohio. David Lionel Dahmer, was born December 18th, 1966. And in Ohio, Jeffrey would experience two significant um, betrayals. The first one was um, Jeffrey liked a particular teacher, and so he gave her a bucket full of tadpoles, only to find out later that she'd given them to a friend of his. When he found out, when he found the bucket of tadpoles in his friend's garage, he poured motor oil in the bucket to kill the tadpoles. There was an incident with another boy in which the boy told Jeffrey to pretend to strangle him and promised Jeffrey he wouldn't tell the teacher, but instead the boy immediately ran to the teacher, which resulted in Jeffrey receiving a paddling. Brian Masters, in his book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer, postulates that it was around this time that Jeffrey began to develop schizoid personality disorder, which is characterized by a lack of interest in social relationships, secretiveness, apathy, detachment, and a tendency towards solitary activities. There is an inability to trust anyone. During Jeffrey's sixth year, Joyce's mental health had continued to deteriorate and she was allegedly abusing laxatives and sleeping pills. She was always tired and would shake uncontrollably. Reportedly, she was also abusing um, secanol, which is a barbiturate. It slows down the nervous system and it's used as a sleep aid and it's often administered prior to surgery. When Jeffrey was seven, Joyce was diagnosed with acute depression And Lionel began doing much of the parenting, and in the minuscule amount of time he was home. Joyce continued to suffer from insomnia, constipation, exhaustive fits, and these would leave her bedridden. There were occasions when Jeffrey would see his father hit his mother. The Dahmer family then moved once again, this time to Bath, Ohio, uh, when Jeffrey was eight. The house was in the country so that they could, re- they could raise chickens, sheep, and rabbits. And the family moved at the start of the summer, so Jeffrey had not had a chance to make any friends. Years later, when Jeffrey first started getting in trouble for sex offenses, Lionel called his probation officer and described an incident in which Jeffrey had been, le- had been molested by a neighborhood boy sometime during his eighth year. The incident is cited in a number of books about Jeffrey Dahmer, but later Lionel and Jeffrey denied it. Joyce continued to struggle with her mental health, and when Jeffrey was 10, Joyce was admitted to Akron General Hospital for severe anxiety. She stayed for three days and left on her own accord, stating that there was nothing wrong with her. A few months later, however, she was readmitted for an entire month, but this time she joined groups, she made friends, she built hobbies, and she tried to learn to enjoy life, and she started driving. But then... Joyce hit a stumbling block when she found it difficult to lose weight due to a newly diagnosed thyroid issue. She began to withdraw into depression once more. Jeffrey continued to blame himself for his mother's mental illnesses. Jeffrey's one close friend was a boy named David Borvold. Their friendship was based on their shared interests in geology and prehistory. Eventually, Jeffrey trusted David enough to include him in a game that Jeffrey had created called Infinity Land. So in Jeffrey's solitude, he had developed a game he called Infinity Land. It was a game made up of stick figures and tightly wound spirals that were destined for a black hole. The tiny stickmen gradually moved towards one another, and when one collided with another, it caused it to descend into an infinite non-universe. So it seemed that the danger in the game was in the closeness between the figures. So this game seems to exemplify Dahmer's feeling of disconnect and his inability to relate to others. Jeffrey showed increasingly little interest in any hobbies or social interactions, and he spent most of his free time looking for dead animals to dissect. His father realized that something needed to be done to bring Jeffrey out of his shell, so he taught him tennis, and he even got him to join the scouts, but nothing seemed to engage Jeffrey. Jeffrey's interest in dead animals, however, persisted. His his father used Jeffrey's interest in order to connect with him. Uh, For example, one time at a family dinner, Jeffrey wondered what would happen if they put the chicken bones in bleach. And so his father taught him how to clean bones. During junior high school, um, Jeffrey Dahmer was a social pariah. The kids that, that knew him would describe him as smart but really bizarre. When most boys were in the throes of testosterone-driven displays of passion, Jeffrey was retreating deeper into himself. And it was, during his, it was during the junior high school years that his burgeoning alcoholism began to appear. At age 13, Jeffrey had his first homosexual experience with a boy named Eric Tyson, who was three years younger than Jeffrey. The boys were in their clubhouse and Eric suggested they undress. From there, the boys kissed and touched, but went no further. Jeffrey claimed that Eric was the aggressor. Jeffrey Dahmer remained an outcast as he entered high school. He had put on a little weight over the summer due to his developing alcoholism. And he would try to fit in by making people laugh. And if you saw the, the My Friend Dahmer movie, there were a couple of scenes where Jeffrey would spaz out. And the kids would call this doing a Dahmer. Through high school, Jeffrey continued to bring home roadkill to dissect. Um, he was fascinated with the machine of life, not life itself. And this is typical of necrophilia acts. One day, Jeffrey found a dog's carcass, and he placed the dog's skull on a stick in the woods, hung the dog's body from a tree, gutted it, and draped the intestines around the tree. Someone stumbled across the skull and took a picture of it, um, which they published years later. And I posted this picture on my website. It was around this time that David, um, uh, Borsvold's mother, would no longer allow David to hang out with Jeffrey under the guise that she was afraid that the boys would, most likely Jeffrey, We're beginning to demonstrate a homosexual attachment. And who knows if if Dahmer was bothered by the end of this friendship or not. Just like any teenage boy, Jeffrey fantasized about sex. His desires were, however, atypical. At some point, Dahmer's obsession with dead animals and his sexual propensity became fused. He began to fantasize about men as objects, um, but he did not crave a mutual sexual loving relationship. During his teen years, his fantasy life, pornography use, and masturbation became compulsive. Masturbation, although a very normal pastime for teenage boys especially, can be a source of something called operant conditioning. And operant conditioning is the brain's response to reward or punishment. According to Anil um, to Agrawal, in Forensic and Medico-Legal Aspects of Sexual Crimes and Unusual Sexual Practices, quote, when a deviant fantasy or act is followed by an orgasm, the deviant act begins to occur at a greater frequency. End quote. If there was a painful or unpleasant punishment following a deviation, it should quell the deviant behavior. For example, a sadist should feel guilty after inflicting pain on an unwilling partner, which would suppress the deviant behavior. The issue here is that um, in an individual with antisocial personality dipar- disorder or, or psychopathy um, who's unable to form emotional bonds and lacks empathy, So if they have no empathy, they'll have no guilt. Or if they can turn their empathy on and off, then they'll have no guilt. The other thing that happens is called sexual imprinting. So animals have inborn neural circuits that code for a broad range of erotic objects called innate releasing mechanisms. Um, Innate releasing mechanisms give animals the ability to recognize and respond sexually to adult members of the opposite sex of their own species. So, for example a uh, chimpanzee who is raised in isolation without any other chimpanzees around, given uh, during sexual maturity, if that, chim- that chimpanzee is exposed to a, an adult chimpanzee um, of the opposite sex, he will be attracted to it and wanna have sex with it, may not know how to do it, but will still want to do that. So these innate releasing mechanisms are fine-tuned by sexual imprinting. And this is like a phase sensitive learning. So, sexual imprinting, what is that? Well, sexual imprinting is kinda like, you know how birds imprint on their mother? So you know when you see little baby birds following their mother? They follow their mother because they imprint on her. And there was an episode of The Middle, I believe, where, um, I think it was The Middle. It was one of these, it was one of those TV shows where the family had um, pet ducks and they started following the mother around. They followed Frankie around because they imprinted on her. So sexual imprinting works in much the same way. If you become sexually aroused at a particular um, object or person or whatever, that becomes imprinted in in your brain. And if you couple operant conditioning with sexual imprinting, you can, you can develop a pretty intense paraphilia. There was a story, um, Jesse Baring's book, um, uh, Perv, the, the Sexual Deviant in All of Us. He has a story about a young boy who, well, he's not a young boy, about a man who had a uh, sexual attraction to a particular type of amputee. And as the as they went back through, um, you know, therapy, trying to figure out where that paraphilia came from, the boy, when he was very young, he'd been crawling around under the table and saw like an upskirt shot of one of his mother's friends and was, you know, sexually aroused by this, because even children can be sexually aroused, um, was sexually aroused by this. And in his little child brain, the cast that the mother's friend had on her leg was like an amputation. All right, so we couple operant conditioning with sexual imprinting, and you can develop a pretty intense paraphilia. There was a theory asserted by John Money um, that states we've developed a love map by our eighth year. Um, the love map begins as a basic template, and it's modified by experience and environment over time. According to Money, to Money, love maps are so deeply imprinted in the brain that they are very resistant to change. I don't know how much of what uh, John Money says I Believe um, he, if you've ever heard the story of the boy um, with no penis, it was the story of these two twin boys who were born um, in the 60s. And during a routine circumcision, one of the boys' penises was lasered off um, accidentally. So the family was just, the, the parents were just beside themselves and they didn't know what to do. And then they saw John Money on a news story. Talking about how um, biological sex does not matter—that you can you can have a boy, but raise that boy to be a girl by um, by nurturing feminism. So, so he did some really terrible things. Um, he'd even been he's even been accused of having uh, been sexually inappropriate with these two boys, um, and it was just a disaster. If you're interested in, in learning more about that, there's a, a, a show you can watch called Dr. Money and the Boy with No Penis, and it goes through the whole story, but it's very sad. So if you're interested in reading more about operant conditioning, sexual imprinting, or love maps, you can see my website for a list of references. As Jeffrey continued his journey through his teen years, he withdrew into himself more and more and repelled his few friends with his constant drunkenness. His fantasies grew more and more depraved, and his masturbatory habits increased upwards of three times a day. He had intense fantasies around a male jogger who frequently ran past the Dahmer house. So one day he took a baseball bat into the woods and hid behind a bush ready to attack the man. He planned to drag the unconscious man into the woods so that he could lie next to him. Luckily for that stranger, he did not pass by Jeffrey that day. In 1977... Joyce had an affair that led to the dissolution of the Dahmer marriage. The split began amicably, but once Joyce revealed her affair to Lionel, the fighting and threats between Joyce and Lionel became more volatile. Lionel insisted she undergo psychiatric assessment, and he provided the doctor with information about Joyce's mental state, addictions, her refusal to sleep in the same bed as him. In his book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer, Brian Masters reports that Joyce had told a neighbor that Lionel's sex drive was insatiable. This in itself is interesting. Um, Was Lionel's sex drive abnormal, or did it just seem insatiable to a depressed Joyce? Again, according to Brian Masters, quote, The psychologist found that Joyce had very severe emotional problems. She was constantly angry, frustrated, and demanding in her interpersonal relationships. She insisted on interpreting the motives of all of those around her, and she seemed to deny anyone's right to discuss her own behavior as it affected others. During the divorce negotiations, there was a lot of thought and attention given to David and where he would live, but Jeffrey seems to have been forgotten. So as he neared the end of high school, Jeffrey's drinking increased. Somehow he managed to graduate, regardless of this alcoholism, Um, And he even went to prom, and you can see the very awkward prom picture on my website. His prom date was interviewed um, on the oxygen special, Dahmer on Dahmer. She explained that she'd agreed to go with him, but that he was gone for most of the evening, and although he promised her he wouldn't drink, he was, of course, drunk. Not knowing what to do when he finished high school, well, Lionel decided that Jeffrey should go to The Ohio State University in the fall. But in the meantime, Jeffrey would continue living with his mother. With his 2.0 GPA, the the entrance requirements for the Ohio State University must have been a lot less stringent in 1978 than they are now. Lionel, following the divorce, had begun dating a woman named Sherry. And in May of 1978, Jeffrey and David met her. Much to Lionel's chagrin and his assessment of her mental state, Joyce had been awarded custody of David. She would often take David and travel to Wisconsin, leaving Jeffrey home alone. And it was during one of these times that she had left Jeffrey home alone. It was um, an evening on June twenty third, 1978, that Jeffrey went for a drive, um, and he picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks. The boys went back to Dahmer's house, and they drank and smoked some weed. But when it came time for Stephen to leave, Jeffrey didn't want him to go. So logically, Jeffrey hit Stephen over the head and then strangled him with a barbell. Jeffrey then caressed Stephen's dead body, kissed it, laid next to it, and finally masturbated over it. Um, Dahmer dismembered Stephen's body, placed it in garbage bags that he then attempted to drive to the dump in the middle of the night. Well, this night he'd been drinking and he was pulled over for driving erratically. Officers noticed the smell from the back of the from the back seat, but believed Jeffrey when he claimed it was the family garbage that he was driving to the dump in an effort to clear his head because of all the turmoil going on at home. Well, after that scare, Jeffrey returned home and disposed of all the body parts. Well, all except for the head, which he carried to his room and masturbated in front of, looking at it. In August, Joyce packed up David and moved to Wisconsin without Jeffrey. So for some time, he was isolated, without money, and with very little food in the house. In September, Lionel and Sherry discovered that Jeffrey had been left alone to fend for himself, at which time they moved in and Sherry cleaned the place up. Jeffrey was going to start college that fall at the Ohio State University, and it was Sherry who took charge of getting Jeffrey ready for college. She bought him clothes and whatever else he might need. And Jeffrey moved into his dorm room, which he shared with three roommates. His roommates found Jeffrey weird, but it was his alcohol consumption that really put them off. To finance his alcoholism, Jeffrey began selling his plasma. He demonstrated strange behaviors, like stacking all the dorm furniture up into one room and smearing pizza all over the walls. He damaged the tiled wall of the bathroom, lost his keys, had his bike stolen, and was suspected of stealing money and items of value from his roommates. Shockingly, Jeffrey failed out of college after the first term. He moved back in with Lionel and Sherry, and once home, Jeffrey continued to drink and smoke marijuana. Once, he borrowed his dad's car, but he subsequently misplaced it. Lionel's solution for Jeffrey's behavior was for Jeffrey to join the military. Well, before episode one of this series comes to an end, I want to quickly talk about the common characteristics of serial killers and determine if Jeffrey showed any of these signs. So the first one is childhood abuse, verbal, physical, or sexual. Um, we, you know, we're not really sure. Neglect or isolation, and a later tendency towards self-inflicted solitude. Voyeurism, an inability to feel empathy or the ability to switch it off. Animal abuse, pyromania, which much like animal torture, pyromania in children is really often symptomatic and of abusive home life or a need for control. So the, the old McDonald triad, which is um, uh, animal torture, fire starting, and uh, bedwetting past the age of like five or six, that's been largely debunked as the definitive predictors of uh, you know, a serial killer. Um, serial killers often have a predisposition towards addiction, And there's head trauma. So of these, clearly, young Jeffrey was emotionally neglected. He did not seem to have the capacity for empathy, and he had a predisposition towards addiction. Jeffrey faced adversity from, it seems, the moment he was conceived. His mother reportedly suffered from severe, debilitating morning sickness, seizures, and anxieties. To treat these ailments, Joyce was prescribed um, a lot of medications, thalidomide, equinol, barbiturates, and morphine, all of which have been linked to birth defects and developmental issues in infants who have been exposed to them in utero. Joyce did not breastfeed Jeffrey, which in and of itself is not a big deal, Um, but if it's true that she rarely picked Jeffrey up, it is very possible that Jeffrey was not able to establish a deep connection with a primary caregiver. Oxytocin can also, you know, in in addition to uh, high levels of oxytocin, Being the bonding hormone, right, oxytocin can also intensify memories of bonding gone bad, such as in cases where men have poor relationships with their mothers. And this is according to a 2015 article in Live Science or Live Science. So there are four neurotransmitters, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins that are responsible for mood and mental health. And without oxytocin-driven bonding early on, there's almost a guarantee of a plethora of problems throughout the child's life. Many examples of the impact of a lack of nurturing occurred in the 1980s and 90s when it was common to adopt Romanian orphans. The problem was that many of these children later exhibited something called reactive attachment disorder, um, and they're often described as elusive, emotionally closed off, and defiant. The children from the Romanian orphanages are an egregious example, with extreme numbers of children suffering from RAD. Many of these children were not only neglected, but they were also abused and were not provided with the basic necessities for healthy growth and development. More important than anything else, these children were cut off from normal nurturing and love from a primary caregiver. Individuals with RAD, reactive attachment disorder, will exhibit one of two types of inappropriate social interactions. The first is indiscriminate and excessive attempts to receive comfort and affection from any available adult, even relative strangers. Two, which this one seems to be a little bit more in line with Jeffrey Dahmer, extreme reluctance to initiate or accept comfort and affection, even from familiar adults, especially when distressed. When a child does not feel as though they have an adult who loves them unconditionally and will protect them from all bad things, they never develop the ability to love and protect others unconditionally. If Jeffrey was emotionally neglected, this may explain his inability to accept comfort or feel empathy. It's also likely that Jeffrey had Asperger's syndrome. And remember that Asperger's is associated with repetitive thinking and behavior. Um, some researchers have actually categorized Asperger's as a form of OCD. So in the 2000 study by Silva, um, Ferrari, and Lyons. The authors argue that Jeffrey's compulsion for necrophilia might be causally related to Asperger's because, quote, "...necrophilia often constitutes a repetitive and stereotyped pattern of behaviors, interests, and activities associated with inflexible maladaptive routines, including a persistent sexual preoccupation with human bodies and their component parts." However. It should be emphasized that Jeffrey's necrophilia, in other words, the creation, collection, and utilization of cadavers and their component parts, is a sexualized form of the repetitive behavioral patterns typically encountered in Asperger's, end quote. The idea is that because individuals with, individuals with Asperger's process others differently, for an example, a child with autism or Asperger's will... Um, employ face processing strategies that rely on component facial properties rather than viewing the face as a whole. And it's generally accepted that face processing is dependent upon information that's divided into two categories, face traits and face states. Um, As described in Pascalis in 2011, face traits include um, facedness, either face or non-face, species, humans, dogs, gender, male, female, race, Caucasian, Asian... African-American, so, you know, just different races. Aesthetics, attractive or unattractive. Age, old or young. And identity, you know, John, Mary. Face states refer to dynamic and transient facial cues. And these cues are used to help process speech, emotional expressions, intentions, and attention. I know I can look at my son's face or the face of my sweetheart, and I'm able to quickly um, assess their mood etc, right? So an an inability to read the emotional expressions of other people kind of removes their humanity because we cannot enjoy our own life without the ability to connect and share with other people. Did Jeffrey's early exposure to dead animals or animal bones set the stage for something far more sinister? Do you remember that scene from American Pie where the character played by Jason Biggs is caught masturbating into a pie? Well, that just screams testosterone-crazed teenage boy to me. So what would happen if young Jeffrey Dahmer, with no one to talk about his burgeoning sexual feelings with, um, became sexually aroused during one of his animal dissections? And What if this arousal was answered through masturbation? This would activate the brain's reward system, and um, it's been tied to addictive compulsive behaviors. Dopamine is released in response to this reward system, and it's, called, it's referred to as the feel-good chemical. But in order to continue to receive that good feeling, the dose of dopamine must continue to increase. So how does this reward system work? Dopamine is released from a group of neurons in the midbrain called the ventral tegmental area. From there, dopamine travels to another group of neurons called the nucleus accumbens, um, which is where motivation and goal-oriented behaviors are generated. The amygdala, which plays a, a powerful role in emotional processing of activity, and the hippocampus that reinforces this activity in the brain's memory. Finally, the prefrontal cortex becomes involved in the expectation of the reward. This type of training is called that operant conditioning. And the use of consequences, um, it's the use of consequences to modify behavior. So think of Pavlov's dogs. According to Anil Agarwal, masturbation is thought to assume the role of the reinforcer in many paraphilias. The positive reinforcement of orgasm outweighs the possible punishment. So again, there's often a special form of conditioning that's thought to be involved with the development of sexual attachments called innate releasing mechanisms, which are fine-tuned by imprinting. So during a critical point in sexual development, if something goes awry in the innate response mechanisms or in imprinting, a paraphilia can develop. Masturbation simply acts as a reinforcer. Well, there's a whole lot more to the story of Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. In the next episode, I'll dissect Jeffrey's military career and the inevitable resurgence of his murderous, paraphilic urges. If you're interested in reading more about Jeffrey Dahmer, see my list of references and photos on the website. Follow the podcast on most of your social platforms at SKB pod or visit my website at www.skbpod.com for more information about the show. If you're enjoying SKB, please take a moment to give it a five-star review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google play, whatever pod catcher you use.